When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hello, hello, leavers, believers, and pretty much anyone who's had a traumatic experience. Welcome to Leaving Hillsong. My name's Tanya, and I know I say this every week, but man, am I excited about this episode. I'll tell you why. This may come as a surprise to some of you, but I'm not a particularly easy person to find peace or to find people I believe in or trust. And I could make a sitcom out of the therapists I've seen over the years. I always seem to get the weirdest, weirdest people. Then one day, I reconnected with my second cousin, Tiffany. Tiffany Wilder is the daughter of my mother's first cousin. Our grandfathers were brothers, and her family is actually the only like blood relations that we have in Australia. So we'd all kind of been connected and we'd seen each other from time to time, but then, don't know, Tiff just kind of walked back into my life. We got reconnected in early 2018, right as I was losing an incredibly important relationship and right about when my dad got a motor neurone disease diagnosis got sick, died unexpectedly. And through my multiple worlds of grief and bewilderment and despair, there was this incredible strength from my little second cousin, Tiffany. I mean, you remember when Sarah said on the podcast about how she's really suspicious of talk therapy and it just doesn't work because a lot of us have seen all of the tricks of the trade and the manipulations and if you've had training in anything like psychology or social work you just go yeah yeah see what you did there but I challenged her and I argued with her and she stays strong this one so I'm puppy dog excited that 
I was able to sit down with her and ask her about this stuff. And as a trauma expert, she has had um, experience with people who do have religious trauma syndrome. And I wanted to see how she'd react to our scenarios because her expertise and strengths very much are in how to manage trauma, how to heal from it, how to recover from it, especially when a narcissist has inflicted it on you or a narcissistic system or organisation. I love every moment of this interview so much. I'm just going to jump right into it. And I want to know if she has such a big impact that, like me, you end up walking around going, Tiffany says, and yes, I know what transference is. So I'm even going to give you a bit of a break from my voice at the end. You know what to do. Just keep leaving Hillsong and keep being kind. Here is Forgiveness is an Inside Job with Tiffany Wilder. Hi, Tiff. Hello, how are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. Thank you for having me. Oh, there's so much that we could discuss, but I'm going to try and... um, Stay focused, stay simple, because there's just so much here. Can I get you just to tell people a little bit about what your work is? Like, what do you do? I am an authentic alignment mentor, Mm. and I help people get back to their authentic sense of self. Okay. Now, what does that mean, really? It means that throughout our experience of life, our conditioning and our experiences and our traumas, shape us in a way that's not necessarily true to who we are at our core. We are living life through these experiences rather than aligned to what feels true to us. And so I help people identify and shift those limiting beliefs, those experiences that have still held in the body as trauma and come back to that sense of self, that true sense of self. So from that place, they can be more impactful in their work and have more fulfilling relationships and just feel more alive in their everyday life that's fantastic how i mean what's your background training wise to do this i studied psychology originally and then yoga teacher training meditation facilitation but my true learning was through the experience of a deep illness and through my recovery i had to really implement everything i'd learned and embody the practices so that i could come back to full health so I think my experiential learning was yeah. more was yeah. more impactful for me than the actual book studies, which I'm still t- completely fascinated in and have always been fascinated in the human condition and what it means to, to, to thrive in our lifetime. But in order to really recover on every level, I had to go deep and embody all of those practices. And I mean, that's, yeah, I'm a learner by doing as well because a lot of us don't really have to learn until we have to do I guess hey until it well I think a lot of us read books listen to this do workshops do that and it's great to get that knowledge but really changing on a systemic level on a habitual level is a whole nother story and that's where we create lasting change so sometimes it gets to the point of uh, our reality being so intolerable that we're forced to actually make those changes and for me that was my experience is there a, a a spiritual or a religious component to this kind of philosophy or, or way of being so that 
for me personally, there's a spiritual aspect. Um, it's not religious. My practice is not religious particularly. But for me, believing in something bigger than me or the connectedness of all of us or whatever it is to the individual, individual, that is the spiritual component. Because I think for me, it's really helpful to believe that I'm here for a reason and a purpose and that everything that I'm experiencing is happening for me in order to learn and expand and grow. But whatever that is to the indiv individual, that's up to them. I guess it's just, you know, how strongly I feel about the things that you've worked with me on and taught me. And I, I've never really like stopped to ask you, is it an Eastern philosophy or is it Buddhism based or anything? I'm just It's not. I, I've studied Eastern and Western philosophy. So there are elements of, the, of that in there. But what really drew me to this work in particular is that it's non-dogmatic. Because okay. dog, dogmatic teachings never felt like a fit for me. I don't prescribed religiosity. I've never like connected with that. But I do believe that having, and actually the research has also shown that having a connection to something bigger than us and a personal connection, not a institutionalized connection, is really helpful in terms of preventing things like deep depression and even can be helpful in curing mental illness and, and mm, things like mm, that. Mm. This is uh as such then your unique approach to practice then yeah it's my unique approach and it's been influenced by everything that i've studied and come across but i'm really careful about tuning in inward to see what is true for me because i don't want to be rewriting my unconscious beliefs and scripting things to someone else's beliefs that don't feel like me Very um, okay it's not about a, the institution of religion. It's about a spiritual practice. And that to me is a very personal and private thing. Mm. It can't be prescribed. Mm. Oh, I know it just never fit for me, that kind of prescription. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's really interesting because we're looking at institutions that are promoting God as such, but then there's such a culture of celebrity that people really seem to start getting converted, like you said, to someone else's belief system not necessarily like a spiritual connection so that's a very interesting point now we did some running over of you know a clinical medical model diagnosis or analysis sorry of narcissism narcissistic traits back on case notes episode two where we did with james you know who's a who's a clinical practitioner and you and I have been talking about this for years and I should have yes. a lot earlier because when you first started talking to me about, you know, narcissism and narcissistic behaviour, I was like, no, I don't hang around all the good looking people. I don't know the beautiful people. So I don't know what she's talking about and stuff. But as I've learned over the time, it's, you know, it's so much about this empathy stuff and having a conscience and, you know, a responsibility and all of those kinds of things which now just seem so familiar to me there's people with empathy and there's people with no empathy and i don't know if the world's that black and white but so what i'm finding is that you know there's there's so many people who just don't seem to care how they impact other people and the people that get hurt by them you know just can't seem to make sense of it so i guess what i'm asking you is like 
we can assume, we can kind of see the really extreme behaviours of people who don't care how they hurt other people. But on the on the less extreme level, like, do you view this this word narcissism in the same way as the medical model, or like, what does all that mean to you? Uh, I do definitely uh, think that medical model of narcissism, you know, prescribed to that. I think the word narcissism and narcissistic is thrown around a lot these days, especially. Yeah, social media world. And I think it's important to differentiate between narcissistic personality disorder and narcissistic traits. Okay. But to me, what's more interesting is if you have grown up in a system, a narcissistic family system or narcissistic institutional system, and that's been modeled to you and you've internalized that, Mm. looking at, at how that's affected us, and what roles we've taken on in response to that and how we can shift away from it so we don't keep repeating that over and over again. Okay, so how do you know if you've grown up in a narcissistic system? But what I like to say is that for every narcissist, there's a codependent. And if you grew up in that system, you know, the family system or the institutional system, and you took on the codependent traits, you are all about other people and haven't got a strong sense of self you will like be the fixer or the helper or the person that's everybody's go-to but at the expense of your own needs okay that's a perfect candidate for um, a church service yeah please keep going it is and the thing is if you're not conscious of it and you're just running these patterns and scripts unconsciously it's like they call it the bite that fits the wound so you'll keep attracting these narcissistic relationships or it's friendships or professional or in family situations because it fits the role that you already play okay. it's a really harmful role to be in it can be at the expense of your mental and physical and emotional health so i mean so what would an institution or a family that displayed narcissistic traits and you know leave somebody being the empath or the codependent what does it look like like how would you know usually what it means is that that there's one person at the at the head of that model mm. whose needs and feelings rule the entire system so mm-hmm. their needs have to be met and it can be at the expense of anyone else in that system and other people will take on different roles that feed those narcissistic needs i mean how do they get to be the boss how does this work like how does one person get to dictate what everyone else does i don't know if they set out intentionally to be that person it's just how they've come up it's in a response to their experiences yeah. yeah so i like to you know at this point when i've done this amount of work on myself and worked with enough people i still like to come to it from a place of compassion which is not about accepting or validating those how, how they behave but it's about knowing that you know it's not someone setting out to be you know pl- sitting down and planning out how to take over a family or an institution it's just how they've shown up in the world because their needs weren't met and they became all about their needs okay as opposed to becoming all about everybody else's needs so it's like the flip side am i being too simple when i say that there seems to be those kinds of two kinds of people in the world like is that too simplistic i mean there are some healthy (laughs) not healthy that's (laughs) the wrong word but there are some people who had more reciprocal relationships modeled for them I don't think it's everybody. Okay. But there's a lot of it out there. And also codependence is when it's become 
quite entrenched, whereas there's quite a lot of people out there who are more on that people pleaser level. But no, I don't think it's as simple as those two people in the world. Mm. But when it's our lived experience, it can feel like you're surrounded by narcissistic people. And until you step into that, that more intentional self where you're not just all about everybody else. I mean, it's an interesting escape as well, isn't it, to be somebody who's running around kind of helping everybody else. I mean, I know for myself then you don't have to look at your own life while you're busy helping everyone else. Oh, 100%. And I was the same. Like I was all about everybody else all of the time and I was just falling apart behind the scenes. I was really good at putting on like the Tiffany show and, and seeming really okay all of the time. But underneath that, I was not okay at all. And I was so busy, like looking after everybody else all of the time, that I was just falling apart, really. And and it, I mean, it doesn't work long term, does it? I and mean, eventually, something's got to give, right? Well, it doesn't work in terms of creating a life that's meaningful and fulfilling, and mm. it erodes you like emotionally and physically. For me, it did. That's how I ended up getting so unwell. And that illness was really a gift because it helped me. It forced me to look at all of these things on a really deep level and save me from doing it for, you know, uh, the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now just just, just back to this compassion thing. Yes. It's a, it's a hot topic. I, here's one thing I have to say about it. For yes. me, being compassionate about how people became how they are is not the same as saying you have to have them in your life or you have to tolerate the behaviour or anything like that. You can have compassion from a distance. You can say, I understand they are how they are because of what they went through, but it's not acceptable for me. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, that's more of an understanding. It doesn't seem to have so much emotion attached, that kind of compassion that you're talking about. No, it's definitely, for me, not about pretending, pretending like everything's okay. It's not okay to mistreat people. It's not okay to be abusive towards people. We can understand how you got there because of your experiences, but it's still not okay. I mean, it is so interesting in light of all this because, like you're saying, I mean, the, the people that are all about them have come from some place of great deficit as well and they're just kind of, what, acting that out on other people while they're trying to survive. Or It's, it's so difficult to measure intent and responsibility where there's people without a great deal of personal insight and, you know, accountability. You know, they're not willing to kind of look that deep and they're doing all the deflecting as well. I one. guess so. But, you know, they say in, often it will be all the people around the narcissistic person in therapy because that person won't, won't be able to go and have therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh-huh. So I don't know if it excuses anything. You know, it might mean you have to keep a safe distance, but it's just having that understanding. Like They're not doing it to be bad. They're doing it because it's how they are okay but then at some point they've got to know that their actions impact other people even if they don't feel it or care about it surely they can see the results and then you know what do we do with the compassion there when they keep persisting with the same behaviors and i asked yeah but that's when you're missing the boundaries piece ah that distance i'm not saying to tolerate bad behavior from anybody or harmful behavior that's where the distance comes in okay so where does the compassion help me to understand that it's not actually pers- a personal attack. They're not doing it like with sitting down and going, how am I going to undermine this person's experience of life? 
they haven't put that much thought into the other person at all. Okay, okay. And I mean, that's something that's so interesting that you said to me years ago, which is, you know, stop worrying about what the other people are doing and worry about your own healing because we can all get very, well, I know I can get very reactive to the bad behaviour and sort of start focusing on the person that's doing it rather than just worrying about myself and how I respond. And and if they have that those true narcissistic traits, you worrying about them, even if their behaviour is not what you want, you being caught up in that drama is still feeding their narcissistic needs. Yeah, yeah. It's like staying in the trap. And that's why I'm so passionate about like who can, like their intent is their business. Okay. Focus back on what you need to heal. It's because we want, I get it. We want to know why. Like, why would someone do that to me? Mm -hmm. But we're never going to get an answer that's fulfilling or satisfying. It's hard. It's really hard. It is really hard. But I guess when we turn it around to what am I going to do from here, that's taking our power back. Okay. I mean, I, I, I know that you are working with people who have experienced religious trauma, but part of why I was really looking forward to today's chat is to kind of throw some things at you and get more of a kind of objective response, like a practitioner's response to things that don't know all of the kind of ins and outs of this culture. And one of the big issues in this fundamentalist Christianity and megachurch Hillsong type places is this emphasis on forgiveness. Wherever anybody has a problem or even before there's a problem, there's this expectation of forgiveness. And what we're finding is it really leaves people open to that next round of abuse. And the onus is on them to kind of deal with bad behaviour rather than a responsibility going back onto the perpetrator. So, I mean, what do you feel about this concept of forgiveness? Okay, so I think like accountability is one thing and people should be held accountable for their actions. But I don't believe that we can forgive another person, not truly. I think forgiveness is an inside job. So we can forgive ourselves for tolerating intolerable things when we didn't have the knowledge or the or the the backup to do differently. Mm. Especially if it's things that we've tolerated over and over again, there can be a lot of mm. of grief that needs to come up. And I think it's really important that we find forgiveness for ourselves, but for all the things that happened when we couldn't walk away or couldn't say no or didn't understand how harmful it was to us but i don't think we can truly forgive another person what does that even mean well what does that even mean i don't know i really don't know we can accept them for who they are that i get we can accept them and we can create distance or boundaries if need be because of their if their behavior is continuously harmful we can give them another chance if they truly show signs of change like truly but I don't know what it means to forgive another person in that way. What does that mean? If it means I don't hold a grudge anymore for how you behave towards me, okay, I guess you can come to that. I think to me that sounds just like acceptance, acceptance of what happened okay. so that you can move on. But I really don't understand what it means just to forgive someone. How do you forgive things like that? It has become such a premise of this form of religion and it's it's so expected and it's so demanded that people just allow whatever to take place and then it's none of your business what happened and, and you've just got to kind of accept it and forgive it and keep moving and it's, it's sorry it's it's a really complex and dangerous it is dangerous and i think a lot of the time when it's when we're talking about that person with those high narcissistic traits what they what that really means or how i hear it is stop making me feel bad about this 
ease my discomfort in in feeling bad about what I've done and why why must you do that I recently read a piece by a guy who was analyzing church environments and talking about how perfect they are for predators and perpetrators and one of the main reasons was because these places have an emphasis on forgiveness so people know they're already get away with stuff before they've even done it I mean give me a very simple kind of uh, how this system would look so you've got We've talked about, you know, the receptors of the narcissistic behaviour being the kinds of people that were what people pleasing people anyway. Is that right? I mean, and then yeah. what somebody comes along who demands that and, and it fits that bite. Uh, fits look, I think it, it can come even from how you, the role you played in your family as well when you were really little, you know, it's from birth till seven or birth till 14 if we're being more generous and temperament is also a factor in there as well because the same there can be two people in the same system or the same family yeah. that same have the same people running the family and turn out very differently yeah how does that happen or do these groups just kind of form and one person takes power and the other people fall into line well, everyone will be in that dysfunctional system and play a role in it but the role they will be that they'll play will be different so it might be that someone else grows up and becomes a narcissist themselves. Like they respond to not, to not having their needs met adequately by becoming all about their needs. Okay. Or they might respond by becoming, you know, the people pleaser or, you know, the good girl or good boy who always is that golden mm -hmm. child and does everything mm -hmm. right because they feed that narcissistic system by being the one who models that they're, everything's fine because they're doing so well. Okay. There's like the black sheep of the family who's, who ends up being the scapegoat tell us about that a little bit because i think this is a community of scapegoats and black sheep in a lot of ways well the scapegoat in that system is the person who all of the problems in the system get funneled into that person okay. so they're seen as the problem oh. child or the unwell one or they act up and instead of the light being shone on the system and why it's dysfunctional they're just made to look like the dysfunctional person Sometimes they can even be the most clear seeing person. They're calling out the system for what it is, but they're mm -hmm. scapegoated at the expense. You know, it's at their expense instead of at the expense of the system. You know, there's no problem here. You're the problem. Okay. And then there's a, a golden child that can't do wrong. Yeah. Um, and I the mean, roles shift. It's not like they're, they're set in stone. They can shift it throughout different okay. you know throughout a lifetime of a family or a system but it would depend on that you know the temperament the role that you, you take at that time in your life and and how that narcissistic person at the helm where they're traveling at that time too see that it's just so interesting to think of it on these multiple levels yes there's families and those kinds of systems but it's identical to the way these organizations these big churches are run you know, there's definitely favourite golden children in the congregation and then there's, you know, outcasts as well and it all seems to fit that system. Yeah, and it's easier, right? You can see how instead of going, oh, we need to diversify and accept a whole lot of different people, we'll say if you don't fit into this model, you're wrong. Yes, that's it. That's well, if it. you're calling it out and saying something's not right here, you're the problem, you're the issue. Every time, okay. And sometimes it's like, you know, in the mythology of the scapegoat, you didn't take an unwell or a weak goat to put all the, the pressure on because okay. they would have just died. 
they take a strong healthy goat and then put all the pressure on that because they can bear it for longer wow yeah, awful right wow since i mean you say that they're not necessarily premeditated but man these have got to be some skillful people these powerful narcissists because they sure as hell can pick pretty quickly who's going to do what and you know yeah i guess i just don't think it's premeditated i think it's how they are like they like they believe their own stories yeah well that's the other thing that's so confusing and if we're going to talk you know i'm going to throw a name at you which is this brian houston guy and he's, you know, sorry, so Brian Houston has come from an incredibly dysfunctional family. His father was a prolific sex offender against children who was also incredibly unwell psychiatrically. And this has come out in this grandiose religious ideation kind of. So it's pretty clear to see that it would have been, you know, a tough upbringing there. And yet, you know, the question that I've had for 15, 20 years is, does he believe his own stuff? Is he sincere in his religion? It's so, obviously, I can't speak for somebody else, but, you know, it's difficult for a lot of people to gauge because they don't see, it doesn't look premeditated, it doesn't look cunning, and in a lot of ways, Brian Houston gives off this kind of simple going, we called him, you know, a bit of a dad, we called him in the last one, you know, just this easygoing kind of a doofusy guy who doesn't really know. But is that his cover? Is that his kind of... Look, I can't speak to him, obviously, but I don't think it is. I think they really believe their own scrap. Like, yeah. Years ago, there was that guy who went to that, that island full of kids and shot them all. Do you remember that story from a while back? Mm-mm. Where was it? It was somewhere in Europe. He truly believed, and and he is an example of someone with an extreme narcissistic personality disorder. Um, but when he went on to trial, he didn't he didn't feel bad for going and killing all those kids. He felt like he was on a mission, you know, that it, from above to help m- move forward his agenda. And he truly believed that. He thought he was doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I to this day watching some of these big names over and over and they they do seem to still be very sincere in what they're doing they may not be accurate they may not be but they certainly seem genuine in their own beliefs and it's, that's why i think it's so important not to try and understand where they're coming like not to get caught up in the why mm-hmm. are they doing this to me because and i think i've said this to you before it's like trying to understand someone who's a bit you know i don't even want to say it so bluntly but they're acting like crazy people. How are you going to understand that? Well, yeah, because it's not rational. It's not. No. Oh, and this is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, the urgency that you might hear in my voice is because I get mail from people who say, oh, you know, they probably meant well and, oh, you know, they're good people deep down and some things just went wrong a bit and it's like, how do you kind of manage that? Because, you know, there's people that have been damaged and they're still trying to, you know, justify, make excuses, all those kinds of things for the person, which I understand is the compassion that you're talking about. No, and that's different yeah. to the compassion I'm talking about because yeah. I don't know about this meaning well. I don't know. I just, the compassion is more like they're dysfunctional because of their experiences mm. and that's why I need to have these strong boundaries even if that boundary means not having them in my life. So, so it's then- more like black and white than that because this meaning well, what like 
there's that saying, right? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. What does it even mean? How you actually show up in your life, how we engage with each other, that's what really matters. And I've learned the hard way over and over again to take people at their actions, not at their words, because mm. that's what matters. Yeah, okay. Tell me how do people know, like we hear this other word toxic and this is a toxic relationship and stuff and it seems to be tied in with this narcissism and selfishness and, and all that kind of stuff. How can I tell whether somebody that I'm in a relationship with on a personal level, professional, at work, uh, the pastor, the priest, I don't know, how do I tell if they're just a selfish guy or whether they're somebody that's actually you know, got these narcissistic traits and can cause damage in my life. Like how do you? How so do you... some of the big red flags is they won't take responsibility for their actions. Okay. You know, you can bring something to them and they're not willing to address it or to do anything to change it. They deflect or project onto you so that issues never really dealt with. Mm. You know, I find with a lot of people in that dynamic, they'll bring something up or set a boundary and somehow end up apologising. <laughs> so get caught in that drama and then yeah. get made to be the bad person and yeah. you're like how did that happen but I just ended up saying sorry yeah, and feeling bad sorry. <laughs> and like genuinely feeling bad because we yeah. take it on and we take it as truth rather than being clear about our boundaries and knowing that it's healthy and okay to enact our boundaries but I think noticing those those are some of those red flags in the other person they haven't got that self-awareness. They're not willing to look within. Okay. I mean, it's that willingness as well, isn't it? Because we're all, like, we're all learning every day and making mistakes every day. Oh, totally. I... It's not about not making mistakes, like, being perfect and not making mistakes. But that empathy part is really key because if they cannot see, see things from other people's perspective, like, genuinely cannot do it, that's a really big red flag that there's some strong narcissistic traits. Can people develop empathy or do you, like, uh, I had been told by a psychologist that, you know, you, if you don't get it when you're young, you're never going to develop it. What's the thinking on that? I don't really know if people can develop empathy. Mm -hmm. I think that obviously there's like one in a hundred people, they say statistically, that are prone to psychopathy mm -hmm. and they cannot, they're not going to develop empathy ever. In terms of narcissism, I don't know, but, you know, you can grow your emotional intelligence, definitely. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if those are tied into each other. Yeah. I, I'm, but I'm, yeah, the willingness is the biggest part because if you're not right. willing to look at yourself or to look at your role in things or to even face up to your own wounds and your own demons, how would that growth even happen? Yeah. And I ask you that because getting back to that forgiveness stuff, there's, in these environments, you know, with these incredibly powerful people who have done extensive damage to people and then there's this emphasis on forgiveness and, you know, giving people second chances, be talking about, you know, at what point do people cut their losses and say, I, I don't want to keep trying to fix this and trying to make it workable because you refuse to acknowledge anything anyway and you're never going to. And, you know, I, I, I don't have to keep trying at this anymore. And it's, you know, it's just a difficult call to make and to know exactly when, nah, that's enough. I don't have to do this anymore. Or whether somebody's going through a hard time and you should just support them. You know, those kinds of things. I don't know how people make those decisions or what you think. 
Well, it depends on the person in your life and the role that they play. But I think if we do enough work on ourselves and grow into our own sense of self and our mm-hmm. inner power, we can make that call fairly easily because there's some relationships you can end up managing, okay. even if they're not as reciprocal as you'd like. And you can accept them for who they are and not expect anything more from them than who they are and have really strong boundaries so that you're not being negative, ne- negatively affected. But if you can't, you just have to, like, at some point you have to just decide how much of myself am I going to willing to give away in order to keep that person in my life and how much am I not? Okay. So give me a bit of a 101 on boundaries. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Like, just pretend like I'm a nice girl and, you know, I've been trying to get along and... You know, I like so it. So funny that you say nice girl. I'm a nice girl. Because so, like people-pleasing tendencies we think of as nice, but they're not truly kind. They're all about mm. our need to be needed. Do go on. So for me there's a big difference between nice and kind, and clear is kind. I think Brene Brown says that clear is kind. What do you mean? So if you're clear about your boundaries and you and let people accept you for who you are, like show up as yourself and don't be all about them. They can choose to like you or not, and that's their prerogative. And then you can be really clear about your boundaries. So if you don't have, if you're not clear about them and people are running all over you, that's up to you, right? Well, so boundaries 101. Tell me, how does the boundary thing work? Because this is like, this is like we said, the flip side of the narcissist is the impact they have on people. Yes. Um, and, what, I mean, and so what, a lot of the time you won't have ever experienced healthy boundaries. So tell me tell me what you see when people have been impacted a lot by a narcissistic Okay, system. so I see a lot they're like, you know, I say these things to people but no one ever listens to my boundaries. And I'm like, okay, well, a boundary is not about instructing other people. It's about you. Boundaries are right. always about us. So yeah. if I said to you, I'm not going to be talked to like that and if you speak to me like that, I'm going to hang up the phone, that's a boundary. Okay. If I say to you, you're not allowed to talk to me like that, that's an instruction. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, the boundary is always about us. Back to your own responsibility for your own actions. Okay. Yeah. I only have 20 minutes for this. I'm going to have to hang up after 20 minutes. Is different to like, you can only keep me on this for 20 minutes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm just using the phone because we're on the phone, but you understand what I mean. So that's a strong boundary. But a lot of the time, if you haven't experienced healthy boundaries, you feel bad, guilty for setting boundaries. 
I feel guilty when I press the thing um, with to stop the traffic when you cross the road because I'm holding up the traffic. Like I, the essence of that is saying that your need to cross the road is less important than any other person that drives past. Well, and I say, I mean, yes, because you, people might be on the way to work. Because you've been been brought up to believe that your needs aren't important. Well, we were all brought up to believe our needs were were absolutely irrelevant to the purposes and the future of the kingdom of God. And I'm not over-exaggerating that. We no, are, I get that. We are instructed that, we, you know, we were born sinful and we have to spend every single moment after that making up for it. And that self-sacrifice, Jesus said, greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his brother. So self-sacrifice is some kind of ultimate goal and makes me think, you know, there's not a lot of healthy boundaries going on in that scenario. What do healthy boundaries look like in terms of, I don't know, bigger things like that? Those phone analogies were quite helpful in terms of, you know, boundary focus. What do you do when it's a lot more complex or there might be a cost attached? So you have to. So can you give me an example? You have to, um, you know, where it's where it's more than just a phone call or something where you're going to have to tell people you can no longer participate in a church or you haven't got the time to, you know, invest in one of their programs or, you know, you're maybe going to go to another church altogether or not even one, you know, and then as you have taught me, every time you put a boundary up, there's going to be some kind of response because someone's going to miss out, yeah? Yeah, so there's those fundamental rules of setting boundaries. And the first one is set the boundary clearly and concisely. The second one is expect a kickback. And that's okay. one everybody forgets, especially when they're new to learning how to set healthy boundaries. Okay. Uh, and the third is to not not get drawn into the conflict to let the boundary be the last thing that they heard because that when we do get drawn into it that's when we end up you know with the deflection or the projection or the turning around and we end up being the one who feels like we have to say sorry or that we've done something wrong um so especially when you're setting boundaries with people who you've never set boundaries with before okay expect that kickback they're going to come up with this and that and why why it's not right or it's not fair or this or that. They were benefiting from you having no boundaries. Now yeah. you are you are like cutting the feeding tube to their needs over yours. Right. And, I mean, and they're not going to like it. No one in the history of time has ever said, oh, thank you so much for now setting this healthy boundary with me. Right. Um, and, and, I mean, how do people manage that? Because it's wonderful that we're talking about this, but the reality is you know, for people who worry about other people and not necessarily what they think, but, you know, there's a lot of people very relationship-based, very social, um, and, you know, it's these are difficult calls. They are really difficult. How do you, how, does it get easier? How do you? It gets easier and the more you start to set those boundaries and set an example for the world on, of how you expect to be treated, the more healthy dynamics you draw into your life and and sometimes it does mean letting go of lots of relationships that you've had that aren't healthy but it's for your benefit it's like clearing out the weeds from your garden so you can plant beautiful plants okay yeah first yeah. you have to empty it out sometimes so you can plant new seeds that doesn't make it easy it's not easy at all but oh my god living that way ongoing is not easy either yeah 
it's actually really unhealthy. It actually can lead to some serious health problems. Well, I mean, yeah, tell me, what do we see in the the receptors of the, the narcissism? What happens long term if they continue with the no boundaries and the Well for one, if you haven't had the opportunity to get opportunity to get a clear sense of self, you're not really living that authentic embodied life because you don't even really know who you are yet. Mm. Like I remember when I had to really start to question everything. Like, do I even like this food? Am I just doing that because it was what I was conditioned to do? Okay. Where do I even start? Who am I? And start to really yeah. redefine my sense of self, like step into that individual sense of self. Uh, because, you... I mean, that's, sorry, it's interesting. This, how do we know what your true self is? Like, how do you know when you've arrived at your true self then? I think that you can feel it. You can feel it on a physical level. Okay. It feels right to you. No one else can can choose it for us because yeah, it has yeah. to, and it shifts when we're like ever evolving beings, right? Right. Sometimes in that system, in that dysfunctional system, you're put into a mold and you're try, like they try to keep you in it. No, you're the this one. You stay in that role. That's mm -hmm. not true to how human beings work over time. Mm -hmm. So it's it's owning that, and when we own our decisions, when we own the consequences of our decisions. We take responsibility for ourselves and tune in to what feels right to us, then we know. And sometimes it starts with just knowing what's not right. Okay, yeah, of course, of course. I um, think most of us know, even if we haven't listened to that knowing, when we've been in a dynamic where we're like, this doesn't feel right. Yeah, yeah. And um, when we're overgiving, it often feels like bitterness or resentfulness. Because we're giving, 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 give until we're worn out and then we're resentful that they didn't give back. That's the, interesting. That's that whole, like, after everything I've done for you and this is what you, yeah. Yeah. Whereas the person didn't really ask necessarily for. No, and also they were just working to the boundaries or the not boundaries that you were setting for them. People who are natural takers, they're not going to suddenly just be like, oh, I'm going to stop taking you from you now because I've taken too much. See, that's interesting because they don't know any different if you're not offering them any different options. No. You know, when people say, oh, sure, any time, then how are people supposed to know it doesn't mean any time? Yeah. <sighs> uh, and when you do start to set those healthy boundaries, you will get to see who are the people who are going to reciprocate yeah. and still be in your life and still have a, and you know, be able to create a healthy dynamic and who isn't. It's a real litmus test, isn't it, that mm who's going to kind of take off once the, the gravy train is shut down or the free ride. My God, the amount of friendships that I lost when I was sick and couldn't be everything to everybody oh. was incredible. I got to see who my real friends were when I couldn't do anything for them Ooh. and they would still show up. This isn't a light conversation. These kinds of people who wield this kinds of power and in this context, it's not just power, but it's, uh, you know, self-appointed, God-given power that people are using to impact other people, it's, you know, it can end up with such damage done. And can you talk a bit about the, the, the trauma responses that people experience in these systems and how they can kind of identify them in themselves or is that off track? Um, let me think about that for a second. So... Yep. 
because people were told to forgive and told not to touch the Lord's anointed and not to criticize and not to speak negatively, right? Negative discussion was really frowned upon, you know, got to be positive all the time. There's a community out there of people who have effectively been silenced um, in this system. And while there are a lot of people who have come out with post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis, a complex post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis, there's still a lot of people operating with trauma that might not have even identified it yet. And yet, from what I can see, it's a necessary result. Like it's inevitable that when someone inflicts those kinds of dynamics on someone, you know, there's going to be a equal and opposite reaction, yeah? So what what are the kinds of results that you get from a you know an unbridled narcissist just enacting and something you know it's sometimes there's a team of them there's a, you know it's an entire leadership of people without much empathy giving out orders what happens to the recipients how do they how do they know that you know this isn't natural this isn't this is normal course of events in leadership this is actually unhealthy and traumatizing how do you identify that kind of trauma am i making any sense yeah you're making a lot of sense i don't know if people who are still in the system and who are a part of that system can see that very well i think it's often once we get out of the system it's like the veil is lifted and we start to be able to see clearly what we were a part of and a big part of the trauma is that disconnection to self and if it's been silenced or you've been gaslit like consistently you've stopped believing your own thoughts you've stopped trusting in your own intuition because all the way along you were told no that's not right no that's not right no you're allowed to say that so part of the healing from that trauma is learning to reconnect with that inner guidance that like inner compass and trust it because it's still there but it's like a muscle so it's become limp because it's been not used because you weren't allowed to use it and it can feel like you're not truly connected to yourself. And it causes the anxiety and the, the meaninglessness or depression or OCD type tendencies, ways to try and control outside of us because we've lost that inner control. Okay. But it's been taken from us. That's another word that gets thrown around all the time, trauma, 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 trauma. What is this trauma thing that people keep talking about? Is it just... What? Well, from what I understand, trauma is not just... A traumatic experience is different to having trauma from it. A traumatic experience that's not dealt with or if you don't have a safe container or safe people to help you process it is trauma that gets stuck in the body. So we carry it with us. And when we go on and relive it, it's like living it physiologically in the moment. So you'll have a, a fight or flight response that's triggered from things in the present but because of experiences in your past. Like one example I can give from my own experiences and i just thought this is who i was it's i didn't know at the time it was trauma but for 30 years say of my life mm. in order to wash my face and just like close my eyes in the shower my whole body would go into fight or flight my heart would raise it was like okay scary to close my eyes to wash my face in the shower because it was so vulnerable to be you know naked in the shower and have my eyes closed okay i just thought that's part of who i was Obviously, to someone listening in, it doesn't sound very healthy or normal because it's not. But to think I've come from that 
to now like sometimes forgetting to lock our front door when I go to bed. To me, that's a world of change. And how did that happen? I mean, did you trauma therapy? <laughs> no, but but was this closing your eyes thing a particular point in life that you had to locate and then work Out of on my the trauma work? I think it was that I was on such high alert all of the time and so highly tuned to everything going on around me at all moments that the idea of like letting go just to close my eyes and rinse my face in the shower was too much for me. Okay, so it comes out in all these different little ways that aren't necessarily textbook, hey? So many ways. So many ways and it's, it, it's different for everyone, right? But... We normalize it. I thought I was just an anxious person. I'm not really an anxious person at all now that I've dealt with the trauma and continue to deal with the trauma that I experienced. But because I went through that trauma, I had no safe people to help me process it. And in some ways was told like it wasn't happening, it wasn't real. I got that complex kind of trauma because it was mm -hmm. ongoing. And then just thought those, those ways of being were part of my personality. So I think when we're trying to identify the trauma, we try to see if in the moment our response is appropriate for what's happening right here and right now, or if it's drawing back on experiences from the past. I mean, can people do this on their own or do they need to be supported through these kinds of processes? I, I, I joke a lot with you because you had such an incredible impact on me and you supported me through some fairly significant things um, in life, but also on some, you know, less earth-shifting matters as well. And then I kind of adopted my own ways of of adapting to that. But, you know, for the regular person out there, how do they kind of start looking at this stuff if they haven't got a Tiffany on, on board right away? Look, I think that we can do levels of it on our own. I do think relational healing is really important. If it feels too big to handle on our own, we need someone to co-regulate with. But the simplest way to start is with self-awareness, to start look at what we're doing and why we're doing it and if it's truly what we want to do. Sorry, what's co-regulate? Co-regulate is when we connect with another person and because of their sense of re regulation, their sense of calm in their body, we get to share in that calm. So it makes a safe space to process difficult things. Okay. It's really big in parenting. So when you have little people and they haven't learnt self-regulation yet, if you can be the calm to their storm, they can co-regulate with you. So when they feel overwhelmed, if you can stay calm and be solid, they come down to you help their you help them on a brain level and a body level calm down. And then developmentally eventually they learn to regulate themselves. But when we're stuck in that trauma and something's triggered, it's like everything's firing all at once and we're completely dysregulated. In terms of these Pentecostal environments where everything is so full of adrenaline and emotion and ups and downs and music and all, there must be such physical dysregulation going on then. Um, yeah, because you can co-regulate to things that are not necessarily healthy for you. We all do it naturally. When you're in conversation with someone on a brainwave level, you tune into the same frequencies. That's why you mirror each other. Or, you know, you notice with people, if you're speaking to someone who has a different accent, someone might take on some of the elements of their accent. Yeah. Uh, that actually, I mean, that's actually a thing that happened in Hillsong. They spread the Australian accent through their overseas 
churches this stuff is so interesting on so oh my god it's so interesting because we are relational beings by nature we're social beings we're meant to be so when it's put into the the wrong hands or hands that aren't i don't know healthy it, it can lead to a whole lot of dysfunction and a whole lot of trauma going back to you know even the start when we're talking about forgiveness and compassion and all that kind of stuff and the onus being on the person to fix whatever situation they're in because the role is as the sinner that has to you know keep asking for redemption it sounds like such an unhealthy place to be in continually and i, I mean i'm just wondering what happens to people who see that as sin instead of trauma you know so they've taken on all the responsibility of everything that's ever happened because that's the system we were taught you know and then they're supposed to kind of off put it onto an external person or an external being I, I don't know if you have any comment on what that could kind of do to someone I don't know well I don't know from that perspective but I know if you look at people who grow up with parents who have a narcissistic need and then they turn into the child who overperforms so you know they get the, all the degrees they get all the a's they get all the this and they still feel unworthy and like they could never be good enough there's so many high achievers in this community but because their goalposts always move mm. there's no way to ever fulfill that and you're always unworthy and yeah. if you come from that place it's very hard to first of all let love in and have healthy relationships it's very hard to have fulfilling work because no matter how you know well you do or whatever level of success you perceive mm -hmm. it's still never good enough there's extreme burnout because they don't know how to stop because they don't deserve to stop unless they've achieved this unachievable amount mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it has such a flow-on effect on every level of their experience so i imagine it might you might be the same but if there's nothing you can do that's good enough to rid you of that sin you're, you're on this hamster wheel how do you ever get off that totally i mean the the philosophy goes that the salvation should end all of that but it just doesn't seem to because i mean i myself went through that um feeling of never being able to do enough um to help enough to do enough to reach enough people that's it's this kind of impetus that we're given and it's endless and it's insatiable and it's and look it's modeled to us in like the systems everywhere in the way that we live yeah. in this capitalistic system where it's about produce more produce more produce mm -hmm. more it doesn't work for any of us it's not working for our planet it's not working for our family systems it's not working like where is that actually working it's working for a, a couple of people right at the top and i don't know if that's really working for them either because well, no, i don't it's not elon's not happy he's had to cut the staff lunches so he's really <laughs> Oh, he has he's cut the staff lunches he's like the richest man in the world and he's like no you can bring your own sandwich what I wanted to come back to is that part of the healing is taking back that personal power. I'm thinking about, you know, so many people that end up quite bewildered and quite confused because they did what they were told. They applied the instructions to the formula that was given in these churches and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, it hasn't worked out. It hasn't, it, 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 you know, A plus B didn't equal C and it didn't all just yeah. go very very simply and people reach a place where they go you know what this i'm not happy here and i want to do something and i i want to say something i want to ask a question and often that goes badly as well and that can be the really 
disturbing time. It's not even necessarily, as you would know, often the episodes of abuse that impact people as much as, you know, the response they get when they disclose it or they try to address it with someone who should be responsible and then they're left by themselves. So how do people kind of begin taking back their own personal power or, you know, can you give us a 101 on where to start? Yeah. I, I can see it's so hard, isn't it? Because often when you try to leave or step away from a, a narcissistic system, whether it's a family, an institution or a relationship, that's when like the, the narcissistic abuse amps up because they don't want that. Like, you've been feeling a need for them. Yeah. And they don't want that you to that to be severed. So they try to grab onto it in any which way. And when you do finally step out, you feel like you're spiritually exhausted on every level. Like yeah. you're just, you're done. But I think what can be really helpful is, and heartbreaking, I'm not, I don't want to underplay that it's heartbreaking to have to see a system that you're a part of as really dysfunctional and broken, yeah. but to learn to grieve that, to grieve the time that you spent there that didn't fulfil you or that was at your expense and to, step away and see that's a broken system and I'm stepping away from it. Now I have to heal. Now my job is not to try and fix a system that can't be fixed, not to justify what they've done or try to understand it, but to see how, what's this done to me and what steps can I take to heal that so I don't have to carry this or this doesn't have to shape my life moving forward. That's where that acceptance comes back in. Not acceptance for what they've done to you, but acceptance that you can't change what's happened you can only change things moving forward. And I think that's where we get our personal power back because we cannot change what's happened to us, but we can take charge of how we move forward and the things that we do to heal from that. And it can be as simple as, first of all, starting to question, what do I do and why do I do it? What's my driving force? What are my true values? What do I want to create for myself? What do I really like and not like? What are the kind of relationships I want to create more of and what do I want to move away from? It's, it's really starting with that self-awareness piece of where am I starting from so that then I can choose where do I want to get to. Speaking with um, an ex-evangelical couple in the States a few weeks ago and they talked about how their relationship survived leaving the church because they said our beliefs changed, that our values didn't. And I found that so interesting because, you know, your values are your values, is it? That's kind of a close to a true self thing. Hey, people can't really shift their well, values. Well, if you've chosen them for yourself. Ah, how do you know? I think you've got, like, I do this periodically. I've just done it today, actually, been revisiting my values and going through and deciding what are the things that I want to shape my decisions based on? What are my highest values? And it doesn't mean I embody them all of the time, but it's aspirational. Okay. It's what I'm moving towards. So one of my highest, and I haven't finished today's work, so I can't give you the results of that yet, but one of my highest values is to be courage. You know, I choose to make the courageous choice. I'm not going to make my decisions based on fear. I'm going to do what feels right for me, even if I have to be really brave to do it. Well, and when you're talking about brave, though, that sounds like there's some kind of costs involved and it's difficult to know how to make those decisions I guess that's me talking about not trusting myself isn't it 
Have you well, learned? that's normal, right? If we've come from a system where, where they have eroded our self-trust by gaslighting, by undermining your voice or not giving you a voice at all, by telling you things didn't happen that did happen, you know, what, or telling you that what you feel is right is not right, then that self-trust isn't there and you have to build mm -hmm. it back up like a muscle. And we do that by keeping little promises to ourselves every day. Like? They can be simple. Oh, I don't know, like today I'm going to eat nourishing food. Oh, I see. Not today I'm going to go to bed at a reasonable time. And then like, when you do, you didn't let yourself down and you can start to trust yourself. Yeah, and it starts to build like a muscle. It starts with just the small stuff. But we set up our values and what we want to build in our lives and see the steps to get towards them and keep those promises, little promises every day. Build that trust. I'm going to say no when I mean it and say yes when I mean it and build trust in that. And it does take courage. It takes courage oh. if it's not you've been your habit or it's not been how you've been conditioned. So that's why for me, for that time, courage was one of my highest values. Even yeah. if it goes against the system I was brought up in, I'm going to do what feels right to me. Even if it goes against what the people around me are doing, if it doesn't feel aligned for me, I'm going to say no. That's, I mean, that's revolutionary stuff. It really is. It's really radical to, I mean, they sound such simple statements, but. Uh, it's not easy. So <laughs> Tell me, I mean. Even now, like I've been doing this for a while now and it doesn't make it easy. But for me, the alternative, it's asking too much. I'm not willing to give those parts of myself up anymore. I'm not willing to create my family if it's not aligned to my highest values. It's too important to me now, so I'm willing to make those hard choices. Okay, I mean, and that sounds like a practice, like any other kind of habit. It's all a practice. And I'm so passionate about creating lasting change for myself and for the people I work with because there's all these quick fixes or you can do this in 21 days or just things that effectively are going to lure you in mm -hmm. and because everyone wants those things and, like, take your money because they're making money out of these businesses but not create the lasting effects. So for me, it's about teaching people skills and tools so that they can continue using them throughout their lives because life is not going to just suddenly be perfect. It's not going to always go the way we want it to go. But if you have the tools and skills to come back to, then you can keep realigning with that authentic sense of self. You can keep embodying your highest values. You can come back to it each time, time and time again because healing is layered. There's no quick fix. That's fantastic because, I mean, this place, these drive-through kinds of churches that offer, you know, a quick salvation and once somebody said a particular prayer, not only are they supposed to have the rest of their life living happily ever after, but the people who dispense this kind of advice then wash their hands and walk away. And it's just been so interesting looking back, like we were, we're always told, bring someone to church, bring someone to church. So you'd go to a pastor and say, oh, you know, I've got this friend and they've got this problem. They go, bring him to church. Because as soon as they get down to the front, as soon as they've made their decision to follow Jesus, everything's going to be sorted after that, which is the direct opposite of what you're talking about right now. And yet it's, and it's so, it can be so attractive, right? How, sure. how good does that sound? Just come here and do this and then all your problems are gone. We well, Great, I'm in, take all my money. Once <laughs> you now be free, they call it. So then people are set up to fail because, you know, come Monday morning, it's not as easy as it was Sunday night surrounded by people and it's, you know, it can be 
distressing from day one that it didn't work out. It's more like tending that garden. You know, I was just having this conversation with someone yesterday. We like the part where everything's in bloom, but it's just not how it works. We have seasons and we have to respect that. We're not always going to be in bloom. And those other seasons aren't less valuable. But if we can keep on track and can keep coming back to values that we've chosen for ourselves and trust that we have built in ourselves, we can keep tending that garden so it blooms every year, so it blooms every season that it's meant to. Okay. I do love to use the word seasons as well. There's a time for everything in a season, for everything under heaven. And, you know, they'll bring in this concept of seasons as well. Then. Yeah, but you think about actually mm -hmm. tending to a plant. Like I have lots of house plants. I absolutely love them. If I don't nourish them with the right soil, if I don't put them in the right space that they need, the right environment, if I don't water them regularly, they don't flourish. Mm -hmm. And we're the same. Yet we expect ourselves to be like, no, you're just, we just say to ourselves, no, you're just a shitty plant because you're not growing properly. <laughs> we do. Like, and that's our self-worth is really high. That's what we do. And instead of going, wait, am I nourishing myself? Am I giving myself the right light and the right environment? Am I feeding myself regularly the right things? We need to create the environment to bring us back to, to feeling well and healthy and, you know, solid in our sense of self. And it takes practice, regular, regular practice. Well, I mean, even since we've been talking, to be really straightforward with you, I'm thinking, hang on, if you continue to tend to yourself and return to the, and all these things, sorry, return to the values, check in with yourself, continue to nurture and tend slowly, long-term and consistently, then I don't even really be needing to ask you questions like, how can you spot a narcissist? Because it'll become self-evident, yeah, that, oh, this isn't healthy to me. That's mm. I don't want to be around that. Is that is that how that works out? It works out. That's exactly how it works out. You don't have to be on high alert anymore because you're so strong in that sense of self and you've got these healthy boundaries that you know your yes and your no so clearly. You wouldn't tolerate intolerable things anymore. And I say that to people on the flip side, you know, people who are like, I kept attracting these narcissistic partners and what's wrong with me that I kept. I'm like, no, 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 hold on a second. If you were conditioned to tolerate those things, you didn't see them as an abnormal. That was your normal. Now you're coming out of that and you're seeing things differently and more clearly and you will stop tolerating that because you will see your worth differently because you will have those boundaries in place and you will see the red flags and go, no, nah, that's not for me. Whereas if you are brought up in the system where red flags were tolerated or like uh, infused with what your concept of love, mm -hmm. then you tolerate it then you are set up to tolerate abuse in one form or another, or another, I should say, until you don't anymore. This is magnificent. Well, I myself have, you know, I've gone up a level. Um, <laughs> <laughs> really, I'm happy, so, you know, everyone else can go home. That's what's important to me, helping people get back their power. Tiff, I really like that. I really like that. I know that I've... Uh, I've come a long way since even we started talking. This has all been so interesting. Thank you so much for sharing. This is going to be an ongoing conversation. As you know, it's just so, so helpful and so, so helpful on a practical level with these tools as well. It's just been life changing for me, this stuff. So thank you. And thank you on behalf of all the people, you know, 
listening, just trying to figure out how to make sense of this stuff and how to do the right thing. So much of the people listening here are the people who tried to do the right thing and got discarded for it and, you know, have taken that on themselves or, you know, have, have experienced suffering from having been blamed for trying to do the right thing. So oh, it's my absolute pleasure. It's, I really, I'm so passionate about it. And I really believe that healed people pleasers or whatever you want to call it, recovering codependence, these mm. are the people the world needs more of because they've got these big, beautiful hearts and they have such a willingness to give. And when they come back to that sense of self and they come back to their power, what they can do in the world is amazing stuff. It's what we need more of. So I'm more than happy to share any of the skills and knowledge I've gained along the way because I think it's so important. Yay, beautiful. Thank you. Thank That's you. Wonderful. I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.